My name is Elena Kennedy and I'm the principal here at Mansfield College and it's my great pleasure um, to welcome all of you to um, the Milton Lecture. Um, it is a lecture which was inaugurated a year ago and it comes from the benefaction of Charles and Carolyn Brock. Charles Brock had been um, uh, the chaplain here and a fellow, or is a fellow of the college. Um, he's now an honorary fellow and it's just um, rather wonderful that he has, um, through his generosity, um, made it possible for us to have this annual lecture. But he has also made it possible for us to have a Milton Fellow. And I'm going to call upon our Milton Fellow to invite uh, our guest to give this lecture and to introduce you to Professor Michael Frieden, who needs no introduction in this college because he was one of the stalwarts of this college um, and had been with us for many years until he uh, so he moved to the position of uh, emeritus professor, but he is uh, a very precious part of this community still. And uh, I ask um, our Milton Fellow, David Leopold, to come up and introduce Professor Michael Friedman in this lecture tonight. I'm delighted to have been asked to introduce Michael Friedman this evening. Within Mansfield, Michael is known and respected for having been a wise and successful college tutor. He played a hugely important part in Mansfield's recent history. Not least from 1978 onwards, he was the driving force which established PPE as a thriving undergraduate subject in the college. He had a huge influence on generations of PPE students, including myself, who benefited enormously, not only from his academic expertise, but also from his sympathetic understanding and support. But I think that Oxford colleges, by their very nature, sometimes underestimate the distinction of their own members. So I want to draw your attention to Michael's wider academic achievement. At the risk of neglecting his ongoing work in what he calls the political theory of political thinking, I want to trumpet his contributions to our understanding of liberalism, and to the academic study of political ideologies. Michael's contextually informed and conceptually sophisticated monographs on first the New Liberals and then on British liberalism between the wars are now firmly established as classic works of historical scholarship, works which no subsequent account of their subject matter can afford to ignore. But in addition to that impact on our conceptual and historical understanding of liberalism, Michael transformed the study of ideology in Anglophone universities. He not only authored the standard work, Ideologies and Political Theory, but also created a new journal and a series of institutional spaces for the study of ideology. And in that way, he transformed the study of ideologies from being something of an afterthought, a footnote perhaps in the history of political thought, into a subdiscipline in its own right with its own characteristic subject matter and methods of study. That enormous scholarly and institutional impact was recognised in Michael being made a professor first here at Oxford and subsequently also at the University of Nottingham. It was also recognised in 2012 when he was awarded both the Medal of Science from the University of Bologna Institute of Advanced Studies 
and was also given the highest honor of the Political Study, uh, Studies Association here in the UK, the Sir Isaiah Berlin Prize for Lifetime Contribution to Political Studies. In short, Michael is not only a good and loyal friend of Mansfield College, he's also a hugely distinguished figure in the wider academic world. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here this evening, and I look forward enormously to hearing his talk. kind introduction. It's a delight to be back here. I've uh, uh, talked more than I care to remember and this is nice, it's nice to be back and, and uh, have another talk here. And I just want, before I begin, also to, to spare a thought for Charles and, and Carolyn Brock. Carolyn has been very unwell and I really want to take the opportunity to wish both of them uh, all the best for a speedy recovery. So, is liberalism on the road to perdition? Of course, I put the question mark at the end, I've left it open both ways. The printing presses of the so-called free world have been dripping with ink about liberalism for the past two centuries. Some of that ink has been crafted into uplifting calligraphic flourishes located at the apex of humanist thinking. But the quantity of that liquid has run off the paper causing unattractive black stains. All is not well in the world of liberalism. Not long ago, the main dissenters from the visions that liberalism projected were to be found in the United States, that outposts on the margins of European culture, and it was European culture from whence liberalism sprang, and almost the only democracy with a term of such strong negative connotations, although France runs the close second for very different reasons particularly because republicanism has done some of the work there that liberalism does elsewhere. So liberalism is a European product, and although liberal ideas have forcefully emanated from the American intelligentsia, they've been remarkably different from their European counterparts, which may partly account for their fall from grace in American vernacular discourse. Now, however, it has become increasingly difficult to make out what liberalism stands for and whether its historical heritage of ideas has any bearing on contemporary affairs. Most educated and socially aware people seem roughly to know what liberalism is, but liberalism never reveals itself in its entirety. And before I continue, let me just state that the relationship between liberalism as an ideology and liberal parties is always a tenuous one. In present-day Britain, it is also a revealing one with residual social justice struggling with markets in the actions and discourses of remote liberal leadership that I won't talk about liberal parties today. What is wrong and what is right with liberalism hinges on two kinds of problematics. The first, which I shall leave to the last, is neoliberalism, an economic pseudo-global doctrine, or if you wish, an aggressive predator that has colonized and misappropriated much of the liberal space and left the latter occasionally starved for oxygen. The second, which I shall address now, is the curious paradox of liberalism, historically associated with a theory of benign and continuous progress towards more civilized and more humane social arrangements, itself inhabits a disjointed and fragmented trajectory. 
The ideology of progress shows signs of rupture and inconsistency. It appears sadly to be losing its bearings quite independently of the political parties that operate in its name. Has liberalism shot its boat? Is its credo a reflection of past concerns? Or perhaps do we need to break liberalism down into its constitutive components and reassemble them de novo? For its combined fragments are each of their own way impressive, packed with vital political and ethical messages. On one level, the issue with liberalism is a problem with any ideology. Its name in the singular disguises the multiple liberalisms that cohabit under one roof. Ideologies tend to adopt a single name or a pair of names, social democracy, for instance, that purports to refer to one kind of thing. And they do so for obvious reasons of efficiency in the political arena. And because what, what, when the human mind maps the reality around it, it tends to prefer simplification over complexity. All that hinges on the question of magnification. If you take a photograph from a great distance, you get the contours, the general shape, but you cannot observe the details. That is a useful marketing strategy for those ideologies that wish to appeal to as many people as possible, something that liberals have always aimed at doing. If you zoom in too much, all you can see are discrete pixels. They give you a far more accurate picture of the terrain, but without the locating context, it is also a confusing one. Optimally, ideology should zoom in and zoom out, sometimes obscuring, at other times illuminating a very specific policy or take on social and political life. But whereas zooming in and out is the best way to understand the messages and operation of any ideology, there's something additional specific to liberalism. Liberalism has had different layers, and I'm going to suggest that those layers are five in number. And they come and go in different sequences, some more persistent than others. Most importantly, they are not all displayed in any one of, liberals, of liberalism's manifestations. No liberalism exhibits all five layers. Any concrete example of liberalism is only a partial record of what that ideology has produced over the past few hundred years. So rather than the linear progression of humanity towards higher, more civilized ends that is a cardinal belief integral to liberalism, liberalism has actually experienced fits and bursts of change that have resulted both in convergences and separations of its key tenets. Liberal ideas have originated at different times from different sources and with different aims in mind. They are composite of accumulated, discarded, and retrieved strata in continuously fluctuating combinations. So let me switch metaphors here in order to explain. Imagine a pile of five sheets of paper, one on top of the other, each of which contains different messages in the name of liberalism. The surface of each sheet has a mixture of opaque and transparent areas. That means that from the top sheet, you can read bits and pieces of the other sheets, but other parts of each sheet are concealed. And in addition, the liberals are prone to shuffle the sequence of the sheets, except for the bottom one, which I will come to in a moment, which they leave in place. <coughs> 
So the view of the inscriptions on the sheets changes from time to time and from place to place. Sometimes do liberals simply crunch up and throw away one or more of the sheets, leaving a very thin version of liberalism. So what are those five sheets or layers? The first and earliest liberal layer is the most durable of them all. Its origins lie in pre-democratic times, indeed long before the term liberal in a political sense was coined at the beginning of the 19th century. The seeds of liberalism sprouted as an uncoordinated movement to release people from the social and political shackles that constrained and frequently exploited them. The spotted monarchs, feudal hierarchies and privileges, and heavy-handed religious practices <coughs> elicited a restraining doctrine, a liberalism contra tyranny, separating rulers from the rulers and curbing their capacity for arbitrary conduct. It is a liberalism of simultaneous release and constraint, one in which spaces are cleared around individuals in order for them to have the freedom to express themselves, to be counted as part of the body politic, and to act without fear or favor. But it's also restrained freedom, it's liberty and not license, as the proto-liberal John Locke put it, because for any individual to have such freedom acknowledged requires that others be accorded it as well. And that applies both to governments and to individuals. Locke significantly, significantly and famously distinguished liberty from license. Liberty being not for, and I quote, every man to do what he lists, but to dispose and order as lists his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. And in that original liberal layer, we can see the notion of human rights embedded and beginning to catch on. At that stage, rights are presented as natural attributes of human beings, but they are precarious attributes, and therefore the express purpose of establishing governments is to safeguard them. And let's register that association of liberalism with rights and of a political sphere with serving those rights and thereby preserving essential human liberties, limiting other individuals as well as governments, for later liberal layers may partly obscure that ground sheet. The second layer of liberalism transformed its earlier role as a vehicle for expressing individual preferences they were not to be interfered with by others. That transformation took the shape of elevating markets to the prime arena of liberalism in practice. Being free now meant being able to interact with others, but mainly with the end of self-improvement materially and spiritually. Markets enabled the exchange of human capacity and they epitomized the sense of open boundaries. The world of free enterprise beckoned with individuals re redefined, not as equal natural rights bearers, that part of the first sheet was obscured, but as unequal units of energy acting on their social and economic environments. The unbounded economic and commercial activity of entrepreneurial initiative takers and leaders of industry and finance would direct, so people expected, 
the toil and labour of the newly industrialised working class. The freeing of markets from arbitrary control or from bureaucratic fetters was added to the fundamental rights that individuals could claim, but was mainly perceived as a necessity for social and national flourishing, particularly in the 19th century. Increased production consumption would stimulate wealth and endorse the virtues of a self-helping population. Individualism, honest work and inventiveness would combine in John Bright's words, and I quote, to promote the comfort, happiness and contentment of a nation. Whether or not all of the above can describe the actual practices of trade and commerce is beside the point. For a mythology of unadulterated economic exchange and expansion was firmly coupled to the liberal doctrine and also inspired what became known as liberal imperialism. Indeed, freedom of economic intercourse and movement could hardly be formulated as a natural right for commerce could obviously not be pre-social. Instead, it grew to become a right the state was expected to deliver. Rather than just assuming its traditional role of maintaining internal order and external defense and raising taxes for those purposes, the state was reinvented as the guarantor of a further set of property and trading rights. Its new economic role was seen as the oversight of a set of socially beneficial practices an extension of Adam Smith's invisible hand, phrases such as holding the ring, honest broker, or ensuring a level playing field, enhanced state responsibility. They later came to reinforce some more recent myths about liberal neutrality. Myths have, myths have had additional roots in constitutional theory, particularly in the United States, where the illusion of the Supreme Court embodying the super-political impartiality was cultivated despite its being an impossibility viewed through the lens of ideological analysis and an impossibility one considers the blatant partisan nature of Supreme Court nominations. For many campaigners, free trade and ethical, as well as an economic rationale. Liberal aspirations were invented by Richard Cobden, who saw in the free trade principle, quote, that which will act on the moral world as a principle of gravitation in the universe drawing men together, thrusting aside the antagonism of race and creed and language, and uniting us in the bonds of eternal peace. So the second sheet of liberalism maintained the idea of individual liberty, but rethought the priorities of the state as liberty's guardian. The free will area on the first sheet was shaded over, though not eliminated. And free trade was etched instead on the second sheet in bold colors. Limited government was removed to another part of that sheet. It was not there primarily to protect against arbitrary oppression, but to ensure against obstacles to the smooth running of economic relationships. Above all, this second liberal layer accepted a new version of human nature, competitive, even aggressive, and even insatiable. That such a version could nonetheless bring about eternal peace was a massive feat of self-delusion. The third layer of liberalism, though not inimical to free trade, switched liberal priorities once again and began to trace a fork in the road that seemed to separate salvation and perdition, virtue 
and Greek. It involved a conceptual and ideological breakthrough in the semantics of liberty. The notion of individual development, of which John Stuart Mill was the most able advocate, combined with continental ideas of Bildung to unlock human potential. While Mill was a powerful advocate of protecting private spaces around individuals, he was at least equally concerned with what individuals did within those spaces, an issue that was not obvious in liberalism's first layer. Liberalism now took on board the cultural creation of a maturing and progressing individual whose will was not to be identified at a point in time, but was exercised through a continuum of points in time, points across time. And that is the real significance of, Mill, the significance of Mill's crucial phrase, the free development of individuality in chapter three of liberty. The creation of a social and political, as well as cultural environment in which liberty will be assigned new significance. <coughs> Individualism may have been a statement about the fixed uniqueness of persons as separate parts of society, but individuality was a detection of a dynamic process at the core of being human. Temporal development and flow were superimposed on the constitutional stasis of the first layer. In Mill's famous words, actually in Willem von Humboldt's words made famous by Mill, Mill quoted directly from the German philosopher, quote, the end of man, or that which is prescribed by the eternal or immutable dictates of reason, and not suggested by vague and transient desires, is the highest and most harmonious development of his powers to a complete and consistent whole. We may put it differently. First layer liberalism focused on the horizontal parceling out of spaces between individual and government and between individual and individual. It was predominantly a keep off my grass liberalism. Third layer liberalism focused on the vertical and forward-looking enlargement of human capacity. The rise of this time-oriented liberalism that be so ever so open-ended regarded human growth as complementary to human autonomy and independence signaled a new stage in its history. The third sheet concealed the areas of the second sheet that emphasized individual competitiveness, and it relocated liberal concerns from exchange relationships to investment in human self-expressiveness. But that part of the ground sheet that prioritized constitutional arrangements for securing independent and broadly uninterrupted individual activity still shone through. But as I would like to re-emphasize, there's no clear-cut chronological sequence between those layers. Uh, John Milton had, of course, expressed liberal ideas along the letter in his area Pagetica, his carefully crafted plea against censorship of the press. And I quote, Give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely called the conscience above all liberties. It was not liberty of movement with defined boundaries, or the liberty to follow one's will, but the liberty to give vent to the vigor and liveliness of the human spirit that exercised it. The absence of limits was, as in the third layer, not just physical, but spiritual and intellectual. The fourth liberal layer, 
continues the remarkable revolution that was taking place within the liberal family of ideologies. Its prime feature lies in rethinking the spatial relations among people. The individualism of the first layer, including Mill's resolute defense of the inviolability of the private sphere, is now severely curtailed. Social space is no longer thought of as separating individuals by constructing protected barriers around them, but as interweaving them. And that was especially evident in the intellectual and political movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries known as the New Liberalism. The New Liberalism emphasized a close interdependence among members of society, suggesting that they could not survive on their own without assistance from and support of others, and insisting on that support not as stifling or controlling, but as essential to individuality and to human liberty themselves. And second, no less significantly, uh, this aspect of liberalism endorses the earlier liberal goal of protecting people, whether individuals or societies, or societies as a whole, from undue intervention in their space. But the net is now cast far more widely, including the blocking of newly discovered menaces to the individual flourishing of layer three, that do not just involve inappropriate physical or legal intervention, and those additional blocking Components are, and I quote in the words of the mid 20th century liberal reformer William Beveridge poverty, ignorance, disease, squalor, and unemployment. The third feature of the new liberalism was that the democratically monitored state was enlisted to assist in that mammoth task because some important activities are seen as beyond the capacity of private initiative. And the fourth feature, in its heyday, a century and more ago, society was conceived of as a harmonizable, unitary entity with shared rational ends. Divisions of class, geography, and even religion were at best irrelevant or at worst pernicious, though practicing liberals usually fell short of that august view. In Britain, that fourth layer pushed out the boundaries of liberalism in its integration of the individual and the social more than any other European liberalism. Its main achievement during much of the 20th century was in laying the ideological foundations of the welfare state, through and through indisputably a liberal creation. As the most original liberal theorist of the period, John Atkinson Hobson, put it, and I quote, Liberalism is now formally committed to a task which certainly involves a new conception of the state in its relation to the individual life and to private enterprise. From the standpoint which best presents its continuity with earlier liberalism, it appears as a fuller appreciation and realization of individual liberty contained in the provision of equal opportunities for self-development. But to this individual standpoint must be joined a just apprehension of the social, that is, the insistence that these claims or rights of self-development be adjusted to the sovereignty of social welfare. End of quote, Hobson, 1909. The most novel aspect of the fourth layer was its version of an organic society. Now, theories of society as a living organism are tricky 
and have historically pulled in the direction of undemocratic, even totalitarian interpretations. For if the underlying principle of any organisms is that the whole is more than the sum of its parts, it may suggest that the parts are inferior to the whole, and that consequently some parts can be sacrificed on the altar of a common good. But just to demonstrate that any metaphor can be invested with contradictory meanings, the left liberals a century ago inverted that idea. They rejected the version of social Darwinism that saw societies engage in a struggle for the survival of the fittest against the backdrop of nature, red in tooth and claw in Tennyson's famous phrase. Instead, they held that social evolution displayed an increasing rationality and sociability and was a stage for the emergence of intelligent cooperation. The lesson of the organic analogy was for them the promotion of individual rights by the benevolent state because the whole cannot flourish unless each and every part is in full health as well. An area of individual liberty was therefore conducive not only to the individual but to the health of the collective life. The fourth, this fourth sheet of paper, this fourth there, let in the third sheet's notion of temporality in the form of individual growth and progress, but aligned it to social evolution. It recognized the individual at the center of the first sheet, but weakened any view of the barriers erected between person and person, welcoming rather some incursions into private space where mutual assistance was the only route to well-being in the spirit of community. And it dismissed the naturalness of rights, regarding them as the consequence of social membership. Although social membership itself is inevitable, and hence rights remain inevitable. Indeed, the salience of liberty in the liberal ground sheet was slightly dissented as it shared prime billing with human welfare and flourishing. But liberalism's second sheet, second layer, human relations and individual market transactions was virtually removed from the sheaf of those five sheets. Fourth layer liberals were prone to dismiss what they termed Manchester liberalism, with its selfish economic man, its lack of focus on the underprivileged, and its overlooking of the role that society plays in the creation of wealth. Though they welcomed free trade, it had to be trade emancipated from the control of financial, industrial, and military monopolies they grew out of the adulation of unlimited private enterprise that transmogrified into exploitative imperialism. Finally, the fifth layer of liberalism, which is far more contemporary, constitutes a difficult terrain for liberals, interspersed as it did with some, with some ethical and ideological quagmires. Perdition, it may not yet be, but confusion and uncertainty are its hallmarks precisely because it attempts to amalgamate incompatible sections of the other four layers. In recent decades, diversity and uniqueness have been reintroduced into the liberal lexicon, partly displacing its past pretensions to universalism. But whereas with Mill, the diversity was one of eccentric individuals whose cultivation may enrich social life, since the last third of the 20th century, it has been one in which the distinctiveness of groups, ethnic, gender, or religious, has been added to the core list of what liberals profess to hold dear. The tensions between such liberal particularisms and liberal universalisms 
would have seemed unreasonable to those pre-1914 neoliberals who professed faith in harmonious and organic unity. Notably, this new fifth layer illustrates the typical disruptive and messy features of present-day liberalism, exemplified in debates surrounding female Muslim head coverings, the caricaturing of religious holy men, the unequal status of women in many social spheres, or the disproportionate number of non-whites subject to police scrutiny. Now the markings on the previous sheets began to show dissonance with those on the new top sheet. Individual and group rights were compatible as long as there was only one group, society as a whole, which was the credo of the fourth layer, and as long as that society was infused with the idea of harmony between the parts and the whole. That had been postulated by the fourth layer. Even the current emphasis on the uniqueness of groups is none other than an expansion of Mill's insistence on the uniqueness of individuals, or at least of some individuals. But in society, many groupings, what happens if discriminatory practices that liberals consider illiberal, they say of patriarchy or uncertain beliefs, took place inside those groups? Did the old right to private space extend to groups who were entitled to do as they pleased inside that area? Could liberals tolerate the illiberalism of group practices in their midst, solely in the name of diversity and group self-determination? And what would happen if some groups engaged in special pleading to have their democratic weight increased in view of their past and present invisibility? And moreover, what if two groups picked and chose different liberal principles from the multi-layered tapestry before them? What if anti-abortionist pro-lifers pushed back the right to life to include fetuses at any stage of development, while pro-choices for women to decide on what happened inside their bodies relied on liberty and self-determination, all available in the first layer, or on privacy, as did the US Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade, 1973. That indeterminacy, inconclusiveness, indeed confusion, cuts liberalism down to size as its analysts recognize that, like any ideology, its conceptual arrangements permanently lack solutions to major social and political issues when conflict seems intractable. An ideology whose principles preclude clear-cut answers may reflect the state of knowledge that we have and current understandings of reasonableness, but it does not offer the self-assured conclusiveness expected of ideologies that liberalism had in its more self-confident faith. At some point, the very richness and variety of the traditions under the family name liberalism began to malfunction. The potential of that richness is still there, but it's far from optimal. Large chunks of the first layer were assimilated into the term liberal democracy, and eventually the liberal simply dropped off. Democratic practices are largely thought of as egalitarian, participatory, and inclusive, and they are part of the constitutional machinery of many states. But giving a voice to all people does not ensure that it is a liberal voice. 
And we haven't yet to witness a full-scale revolution that was liberal, from the French to the Russian to various so-called Arab Springs. As Europe democratized in the second half of the 20th century, the call was, was for democratic Europe, not for liberal Europe. Even the appeal to human rights focuses on basic first layer rights. The problem is not only the danger that basic rights are mistaken for fully fledged liberalism, but that in political rhetoric they are dissociated from liberalism altogether. The third layer, with its personal stress on self development, has run up against numerous cultural perspectives that regard social context as the driving force of human conduct. It has become theoretically outmoded. But more than that, as universal or global views loom large, it is considered a luxury unattainable for most people on this planet who require food, shelter, and protection from violence. Hence, it speaks to very few. Indeed, extraordinary violence is practiced by so-called liberal societies against their members. The United States is the only Western country, one of only three democracies on the planet, that still carries out the death penalty. 1,400 executions since it was reintroduced by the Supreme Court in 1976 after a four-year moratorium. It may be a democratic country, but it is not predominantly a liberal one. The fourth layer's antiquated and rosy-eyed assumption of harmony, the nine regulation and social, social uh, uh, relationships, disappears under closer scrutiny as societies display ever greater fragmentation and monitoring of their members. Theories of social evolution have fallen by the wayside, and the costs of bringing welfare and well-being to all have proved astronomical made further unsustainable by waves of human envy and suspicion. All those liberal features still exist in small pockets of humanism, but the ludicrous 1990s claim of Francis Fukuyama that liberal democracy has emerged victorious sounds as hollow as George W. Bush's <coughs> claim a decade ago to bring freedom and democracy to Iraq. Instead, what has survived is a variety of liberalism's second market layer, ironically the layer most discredited by liberalism themselves. Whether liberalism is stumbling towards perdition or not remains to be seen, but liberals can only blame themselves for allowing the misappropriators and pretenders to colonize their space and act with impunity on the world stage of political discourse. To be fair to liberals, they have been the butt of sustained attacks and distortions from almost every ideological quarter. Conservatives have depicted them as lily-livered bleeding hearts. Marxists have identified them with capitalist oppressors, the property classes, the weavers of social illusions. Socialists have rejected their complacency, their incrementalism, their ambivalence towards equality and the timidity of their reforms. Anarchists have simply attempted to mow them down in their crossfire against a representative state and the establishment. Nationalists have ridiculed their pusillanimity, their disregard for heroic sentiment, and their unease with power. And feminists have accused them of trying to extending the franchise to turn women into men. Every one of those attacks has taken the easy route of fastening on some aspects of one or two of the complex liberal layers and blow them out of all proportion. True, liberals have been paternalist, 
And they've been elitist. Being a liberal has all too often been a minority pursuit of well-educated groups. The gentility of liberals in response has been their own undoing. Paradoxically, their means of defense, of measured argument and dispassion, of self-distanciation and reflectiveness, and their generic inability to push the buttons of popular, let alone populist, appeal are ill-suited to the hurly-burly of political as distinct from academic debate. Cue then the emergence of a dragon that through a semantic sleight of hand threatens to destroy liberalism's reputation altogether, neoliberalism. What has gone amiss here? The second sheet of markets and free trade has been put on the top of the pack, but its areas have been redesigned so as to allow as few as possible of the inscriptions on the lower sheets to be seen in elevating the requirements for competitive global market above everything and linking it etym etymologically to the term liberal. Neoliberals have not only distorted the diversity of liberal discourse for their own ends, but they have inflicted serious damage on the term liberal, associating it with conduct, policies, and ideas that have almost no bearing on the five liberal letters. Some commentators regard neoliberalism as the displacement of political institutions by financial ones that are entirely self-regulating. That is inaccurate, inasmuch as what remains of the first liberal there in the neoliberal package is an enabling political terrain for the free reign of the economy. Forcefully underpinned, defended, not by self-regulation, but by the wills of political masters. And those wills, rather than being liberal democratic, appeal to so-called social truths based on ostensibly immutable laws, such as if we overtax the very rich, they would simply take their wealth elsewhere, holding society hostage to the greed of its financial sector. Neoliberalism's policies of deregulation and privatization have involved the scrapping of liberalism's third layer of individual growth, the scrapping of its fourth layer of welfareism, and they have shown total indifference to its fifth layer of group recognition and identity. They've even bypassed those aspects of its second layer, extolling international peace and mutual respect. But beyond that lurk, other themes that if associated with liberalism would condemn the liberal heritage to oblivion. First, neoliberalism has created a new social movement <coughs> to replace the individual, the client-consumer, so the client-customer defined as an economic consumer. Specialized words such as passenger, citizen, have been supplanted by a generalized and faceless depersonalization of the classic liberal individual. In current jargon, the public has been reduced to taxpayers. We hear every day on the radio and on the on TV, the taxpayer would want to know how her, his money has been spent cutting off those beneath the tax threshold as not having a voice, and reducing claims of social participation to a financially purchased right. Words such as public, rather than taxpayers, have disappeared. Second, neoliberalism locates socio-political control in a top-heavy political unaccountable sphere. It has been well, well understood, even before Michel Foucault, that the market, seemingly released from constraints, 
imposes its own disciplines and punishes those unable to play by its rules with the stigmas of personal failure, poverty, and marginalization, a far cry from liberal humanism. The third feature of uh, neoliberalism is that it shifts social values to a mastery of management techniques that bring with them pseudo-efficiency, through which, closer to home, universities are sacked of their intellectual strengths, or in economics speak of their competitive advantage, their catastrophically inefficient and short-sighted policy. Fourth, liberal universalism is ditched in favor of neoliberal globalism. The universalism of vision, of comprehensiveness, and of equal opportunities crowded out in the name of a globalism of multinationals and by a power-hungry expansionism that is ludicrously called muscular liberalism by its conservative <coughs> adherents. And the social costs of globalization further erode many liberal principles. Thus the right to asylum is threatened by new doctrines of national sovereignty that ironically are promoted by those who themselves unleashed globalization that are now uncomprehendingly confronted by some of its consequences. Liberalism has proved to be a very resilient and very adaptable ideology. It runs the risk of being overshadowed by its detractors and misappropriators, and of being cherry-picked and fragmented even by its advocates. But it is not an instantaneous snap your fingers and you will see its enormous intellectual and moral appeal theory that so many American political philosophers imply. Its root has always been stony and thorny, and it will continue to be so. The road to perdition may be paved with bad pretensions, but the perennial need to protect its former may ultimately prove to be the most durable guarantee of liberalism's resilience. Thank you.